Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 313. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Happy holidays to you. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 313 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy Award-winning recording engineer John Baffa, who's worked with a wide array of people, including Mike Patton, Henry Rollins, the Melvins, as well as the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet. He joins us from his home in Southern California, and we talk about many things, including his work at Cal Arts as an instructor. So very excited to have him with us today, John Baffa, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's revisit one of my favorite topics, diversification. All right, so diversification, I have talked about it ad nauseum here on this podcast for years. I've talked about it in interviews that I've done, and I'm going to talk about it again today because I really, really think, especially during this time period that we're in with COVID, it is the way to go. It is the way to ensure financial security for yourself so you can keep doing this thing that we all love called audio. For the uninitiated, what am I talking about? What is diversification? Simply put, it is having a number of income sources. Uh, If you have a single job, let's say you work at a Starbucks and that's your only job, right? If you lose that job, you have essentially lost all your income. But let's say you have two or three jobs or gigs. Uh, Let's say you mix and master for the most part during the week. Maybe you have a part-time gig doing uh, I don't know, DoorDash, let's say you're doing that. And uh, let's say you're doing um, live sound at a venue. Well, so COVID hits, live sound goes away. If that was your only source of income, you'd be screwed. But if you were doing the DoorDash thing and you were doing uh, mixing and mastering, you'd have two sources of income that would continue on. And two of those that I've named, the DoorDash thing and the mixing and mastering thing are somewhat COVID proof or pandemic proof, really. The mixing and mastering thing can be done at home. The DoorDash thing, obviously you drive around and yes, you pick up food from restaurants and hopefully the restaurants stay open and you deliver it. That's what I mean by that. Now, what you choose as your income streams, that's entirely up to you. For me, I try to keep all of my income streams audio related as best I can. You could do that too. If you are not in a position to do that, try to include audio, if that's what it is you want to be doing, as one of your income streams, and then find one or two others. Now, I know a lot of you out there want to do a particular thing related to audio. Some of you want to be dedicated mastering engineers or mixing engineers or both, but consider this for a moment. So maybe you mix and master. Try to pick something else that you can use your audio gear to do. Podcasts, audio cleanup audiobooks, something of that nature, because that is two sources of income from the audio gear you already own, and it is something you can do from your home. And then obviously, if you can pick up a third one, no matter what it is, something you enjoy, maybe maybe you like to get out of the house, so a delivery type thing will be 
you know, up your alley. Maybe you have some experience doing, I don't know, uh, doing graphics or something or doing websites. Find something where you can be in control of your own time. And that way, if any one of those things drops off, you can find something to replace that income. And I always think of it like trading up. There's a story out there about somebody that, you know, starts started with a paperclip and then worked their way up to like a house or a car in trading. Well, look at the diversification sources like that. So maybe you're young and you're starting out and you've got, you know, like the part-time coffee gig and the delivery gig and then you're doing some audio as well. And you want to trade in one of those gigs. Well, for, for an audio gig, this will give you an opportunity to test your proof of concepts on whatever gig it is you want. So if you're um, wanting to mix more or master, but you're not sure that's going to provide enough income, you could start doing it. And as soon as that income for that new activity starts to overshadow one of those other activities that you don't like, swap it out. And then that way you're trading up to something that you enjoy more. If your income streams are comprised of things that you enjoy, it really takes the edge off. So keep that in mind. Now, moving forward, I know that there's a lot of you out there that have thought, well, I want to open my own studio. Well, that's fine. But one thing to consider is what are we going to do if we have another pandemic, right? I'm not saying that you should run scared through the streets and not follow your dreams here. From a practical standpoint, something you might want to consider doing is creating your, if, if you're going to open a studio, make sure that you've got other income streams for that studio. Don't make it so you exclusively rely on clients showing up. Because as this COVID thing has proven, if there's anything that'll screw you up more, it's having that supply of clients being cut off. In a nutshell, try to remove the single point of failure. If you currently have a single gig and that's all you have, please consider taking on a second or third so that you can ensure yourself financially against you know, disaster. And you can also do some other activities that maybe you're, you're ultimately interested in doing. So that's it. Protect yourself financially by spreading your wings a bit and diversifying, if at all possible. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, 
check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. John Baffa here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Let's just get started at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I actually had a diverse upbringing as far as my locations. I lived all over the country, usually a couple of years at a time because of my dad's business. We tended to transfer every couple of years or so. So I've lived on the West Coast, the East Coast, the South, a little bit of Midwest as well. So I've, I kind of grew up kind of getting to live with the whole country, if you will, in a lot of ways. And your travels across the country, were you involved in music programs at all? Not till later when I started touring as a live sound engineer. Oh, okay. So you didn't you didn't do school band or anything like that in in school? No, no. Did that make it difficult because you guys were moving all the time? I look at it as it was a challenge, but it was also it helped me be more comfortable meeting new people. And I think that carries through with me today in the audio business. I'm starting new relationships, important relationships all the time. And I think it's important to be able to connect with your client and your partners in the project that way. Do you have any observations of that characteristic of the ability to jump in and meet people and get comfortable quickly? Well, I think it's just a sense of ease that I have meeting new people. And I think that starts to perpetuate that feeling in the session, in the recording session. It's important to get that comfortableness with the client right away, because if they're not feeling it and in it, you're not getting what you really need out of the client. And I don't think they're getting what they need out of it too, right? Mm. They're stressed out and stuff. And if they're in it and feeling comfortable, you get right to it right away, I think. It's a good thing to have, a good skill to carry with you, I think. Yeah, if there's tension right at the beginning of the session, that's no way to start it. It's This is a very personal and important thing to all parties involved. Mm. And if they're not feeling comfortable, it tends to not be as successful. So I always make that a priority. When did sound and audio become an important part of your life? 
I think as I got into bands when I was younger, I was always fascinated by that angle of it, of the business. And then I was fortunate. I met influential people and supportive people. One particular person, Dennis Jagger from Jaggered Audio, he was a third generation sound man. His grandfather did sound, his dad did sound and was the owner of the company at the time when we were younger. And Dennis does, and he still does. And he works with all kinds of big name folks these days. Hmm. But he brought me in and I got a taste of it. And I just, I loved it. I loved the idea of getting great sounds. I was always obsessed with that right away. So that was kind of my entrance into the audio world. So an early mentor, no doubt. Yeah, he still is. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You got in through the door of live sound essentially is that accurate to say yes yep and where did that take you that's a great question as i worked with dennis and his dad with the company for a few years i was in a band as well simultaneously we were fortunate we got a record deal and i got to go into a legit studio and do a legit two-inch tape album and that was the spark for me you know i had the experience of my band being signed but i kept watching the guy at the desk it's like wow I'll that is just, I'm into that. I could feel it. <laughs> and the band thing ran its course. And around the end of that time, Dennis hit me up and he was in a band as well called 10 Foot Pole. They were on Epitaph Records at the time and were touring and active. And he said, JB, would you be interested in touring around the world for the next two years with me, being the sound guy for my band and I'll mentor you. I was on the plane like a week later, right? Of course. <laughs> and we started out, we did a tour of Europe to open up that experience. And we were there for two months in the middle of winter, just getting the same band and that guidance, but a different venue every night was so invaluable for me. It gave me that sense of just take on what's happening, keep it situational and make it the best it can be. So that continued with the band for a couple years as advertised. And, you know, we toured the States a few times, Canada a couple times, went to Japan. And that really cemented the bug for me, for sure. Having that experience, I did grow tired of touring after a while and an opportunity presented itself there. We were on tour. We came back to Los Angeles. We played a show at the Troubadour in LA. We had a great night. I had a great mix. And the house guy was like, hey, kid, you looking for a job locally? <laughs> and I was like, that's funny you should ask. I am. And I'd had a previous relationship with the folks at the club. My band played there as well a lot. We were successful there. So it really felt like my first kind of full circle experience. You know what I mean? Coming back and I took the job and I did front of house at the Troubadour for three and a half years. I worked with so many of my musical heroes. It was incredible. My boss at the time was the king of the secret show. And, you know, I'd roll into work and he'd be like, we have local bands until midnight. And then Rage Against the Machine goes on till midnight until they feel like they want to be done. Like it was happening all the time, Matt. It was crazy. Wow. So it kind of flipped the script for me a little bit. I got the same venue every night and then got different bands coming through all the time. And along with that, I got touring engineers that would come in with these. They were nationals and international acts. Oh my gosh, what an education. 
What an education, night after night. So that three years really took it to even a higher level for me. I knew clearly this is what I was doing. I was starting to work in recording more. My band at the time had a recording set up and I was the guy that would drive it generally. So after three and a half years at the Troubadour, I got the opportunity to come to CalArts. And I thought to myself, this looks cool. Let me check this out and I'll give it a few months and see how it goes. This is my 21st year there now. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Huh. So, uh, I want to divert your attention for a minute. You've mentioned your band a couple times. Tell me about the band. We were called April's Motel Room and it was a five-piece bass drums, percussion. I played percussion in the band, two guitars, bass drums, two guitars, and two singers. Yeah, we kind of just did our own thing and it resonated with people and we were fortunate enough to get picked up and make a major label record and go out and tour for a couple years on that as well. What label were you signed to? Immortal Epic. And who produced the record? Matt Hyde. Did he also engineer? He did not. And the engineers, TJ Johnson, I believe is his the name of the engineer. Yeah. What about that experience did you absorb? I mean, I have to admit, in my days of being in bands and making records, also on major labels, I didn't pay attention as closely, I felt, as I should have to the recording process because I was in the drummer mindset. So did you did you pay attention? Yes, I was fascinated. I recognized the opportunity I had at that point to watch what was happening, mm -hmm. right? I'd already been doing the live sound with Dennis simultaneously, and I was just blown away. I mean, with the two-inch machine, and they had a desk that was a one-of-a-kind, custom-built. The owner of the studio was an engineering, electrical engineer, and made his own Frankenboard, if you will. Mm -hmm. And just to see how it worked and how they did it and how it flowed, the course of making an album really resonated with me in that experience. So I spent a lot of time just hanging out in the control room, just a fly on the wall, soaking it all up, watching the pros do their thing. Back to the Troubadour. In comparing the Troubadour experience, it, you, you made a great comparison there of you know, being with one band, same band, every night, but different venue, switching right. that up for the same venue, the same gear, different bands every night. Yeah. Both, I'm assuming, would bring a wealth of experience, no matter what. But it sounds like you preferred the Troubadour method there, or the single room method, just to really dial it in. Yeah, well, I mean, I got to learn from so many more people at that point then because night after night, we'd have the very experienced, seasoned touring guys coming in. And we were shoulder to shoulder up in the booth. The way it was set up at that time, front of house was one desk and right to the right of it was the monitor desk. So we were literally right there working together, right? Usually if they had an engineer, I would do monitors and he would do front of house. If they didn't have an engineer, I would do both. That happened on a couple surprising names a couple times to me where you figure, oh, they're, they're going to have front of house. I'm not getting anywhere near this one, but it would happen. June Cash and Johnny Cash came in without any front of house or monitor engineers. So that ended up being an opportunity for me to be able to mix that, which was just mind blowing, of course. Mike Patton usually didn't bring front of house with any of his projects. So I got to mix bands like Phantomas, Tomahawk couple of those projects. The Melvins sometimes would have a guy, but 
not always. So I got the opportunity to, to drive bands like that as well, which I got. I still think about that stuff. It was such a cool opportunity. And once again, utilizing the skill set of meeting new people and quickly getting down to a connection with them. Yes. So that there's a, a friendly vibe happening. Exactly. So Cal Arts, how did Cal Arts come onto your radar? Through an alumni who I worked with at the Alex Theater in Glendale, California. It's actually, they premiered Gone with the Wind there. Mm. It's an old, old theater and they had refurbished it by the time I had come in and worked there and stuff. Yeah, he had his finger on the pulse of Cal Arts at that point and was like, hey, there's an opportunity there. And so I was starting to get a little more tired of the late nights at the Troubadour, where it was an amazing experience. Like I was getting home at like three in the morning every night. Mm. And I had a family at that time. I was developing that part of my life as well. You know, it's kind of a bachelor's gig at that point. And so I saw the CalArts opportunity as a possibility of dialing that back a little bit. And that rang true. I don't come home at three in the morning anymore. That's for sure. Well, and it's, it's not necessarily just the coming home late. It's the fact that the family doesn't sleep in till 11 or noon. They get up and you've got to get up with them. Yeah, I was. So I go to bed at three and get up at seven. Usually <laughs> that was pretty regular for a while. I, I was interested in the CalArts experience for that initially. Mm -hmm. But once I got there, my gosh, Matt, it was unbelievable. It's still unbelievable to be part of the family there. Just the variety of music and genres and the hybridity of all those things to come together in the CalArts world is just, you know, second to none, in my opinion. I'm not really well versed on, on what CalArts provides, and I'm sure many people in the audience across the globe are not. Can you hip us to what the program presents for, for students? Sure. So it's a multidiscipline school. So you've got a jazz program. You've got a classical program. We have an excellent experimental pop program as well. Experimental sound practices, which really starts to get into some avant-garde areas, spaces, if you will. The music technology program there is unbelievable. They start to get into the coding side of things, among other things. And then you get the really interesting world music component of all of this. And we've got a exceptional African music program, mm -hmm. Persian music program, Indonesian, Gamelan, Javanese and Balinese, North Indian, all these different areas of music that all come together. There's not barriers between them. You know what I mean? So covers art, critical studies, dance, film, video, music, theater. Outside of the School of Music, yes, it's even broader. So then you get our components and then you get it in the dance world and you get it in the theater world and fine art and all that stuff. And this is all in this on this one campus that's been going strong there in Valencia since around 1970. Yeah. On McBean Parkway. That's right. First right turn. First right turn. <laughs> Okay, in Valencia, California. Got it. Very interesting. And so what is your role there? Is your role the same now as it was when you started? It's evolved a bit. Currently, I am the technical director for performance production, and I also teach recording classes. So I have my feet in both worlds, the live world. I handle responsibilities for that. We do, when we're not in COVID times, we do 
about 240 shows in nine months every year. Mm -hmm. So just all the time, almost every day, weekends or two shows, and we have two venues. So all these different genres of music melding together for all these shows and recitals really start to create this amazing environment. As far as my evolution there, I started strictly as the technical director for one of the venues, and then it progressed into teaching, which I didn't expect. That wasn't something I was looking at as a goal for me, but it kind of found me and I, I really took to it. So over the years, I started doing more recording classes and live sound classes. So we teach the kids how to do shows, how to do productions. It's a very student-driven program with 240 shows a year. That's a lot of staffing, a lot of involvement, and it, it really gives everybody that sense of ownership of the experience that I just don't feel like you get other places, right? So we're all in it working together. It's really wow. incredible. Huh. Yeah. So in non-COVID times, is the school well-equipped technology-wise, studio-wise, recording-wise? Yes. My main venue I work in, which I helped develop too, was it's a live venue, but it's also set up for multi-track recording. So every night we can multi-track everyone's show. At the end of the show, they can get a Pro Tool session or stems and go back and mix to their liking, mm. if you will. And then as that evolved it turned into more of a dual purpose facility. So sometimes it's a venue and sometimes it's a recording studio. So we teach classes in there. People can book it out for sessions. In addition to that, we have our traditional studio, if you will, that's, that's just what it does, as well as a couple satellite studios happening as well for the students. Interesting. So all accessible, all student-driven and very busy all the time. What's the hardest thing about teaching in, in the world of audio for you? Slowing down, I think for me. As I'm in and working, I feel like my mind works really fast and I'm probably working on three or four things at once in my mind. Cool, I've got this kick going, but I know I'm gonna jump over and fix this headphone thing. And at the same time, I'm thinking about that overhead relationship with the room mic you get the idea like in my mind i'm thinking all those things at once but i can't blurt that out to a class or to <laughs> someone i'm giving a lesson to They're like what is this guy talking about so i think structuring my presentation and slowing down to be able to clearly convey what the topic is has really been the big challenge for me i'll be teaching for a while and then i'll go back and be working on a record and kind of sit there for a second and go Ah, I don't need to say a word. You know, I could kind of just go with it. So I love them both, but they definitely feel different experiences to me. Now, when you and your wife bought your house, it came with two houses on the property. Is that right. that accurate? Okay. And so there's the main residence and then there's the second residence, which is a two bedroom house, I believe you said before we started the call. Correct. And your wife said, Yeah, let's let you have that as a studio. Can you tell me about that whole business? Sure. I think the actual convincing of my wife happened in our house before that, which I had a studio in. That was my first shot at doing one at home. We had a convert a separate garage from the home and I installed a bathroom. That was one of the rules. So everybody, it was all, when the people came to the studio, they stayed at the studio. And once we were able to satisfy that, she was very supportive and continues to be 
extremely supportive of what I do as far as that stuff goes. So fast forward, we wanted to move to our new location up here in Ventura, California. And as we were looking for homes, we were looking for something like this, the dual kind of residence or separated building from the main house. Knowing that I was going to step back in and do the studio, continuing on in our new spot, I had albums going. And I was in the middle and I, I had to go to my clients and I'm like, please, will you come with me? I got to take a break and we're going to finish your record in a completely different place. Fortunately, everybody came along for the ride. And I think that was super helpful because I had started an album in the old place and finished it in the new place. And I had a frame of reference. I had that, that client going all the way through it. So as I'm worried, you know, is things translating good out of here? Is this cool? I had that sounding board from the clients to help me transition into where we are now, which is a full separate two bedroom house, separate kitchen, laundry, bathroom, and then bedrooms. But what's cool is all the spaces are up for recording. I use the hallway. I use the bathroom sometimes. The kitchen, you get the idea. Yeah. So um, if you pull that in the main house, you're going to start to run into problems with family harmony, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. Wow. What an opportunity. So you've got this full house. How many square feet is the house? I think it's about 800 square feet. Okay. And how many bedrooms? So it's two bedrooms. Two bedrooms, one bath? Two bedroom, one bath, kitchen. And you got your kitchen, your living room. Is there a dining room? No, the kitchen kind of doubles for that. Mm, okay. Like we have a kitchen table in there and stuff. Okay. Which I usually, that'll end up being like a guitar ISO at some point. It'll baffle off underneath the table and just throw the amp in there. So I got to spread it out all over the house. It's not a traditional studio. It's not, I'm facing forward through the glass and there's the live room, you know, it's definitely non-traditional in that sense. I'm not trying to get architecturally geeky on you here, but from what I'm going to take a wild guess at, I'm seeing some beams at an angle. Is that kind of an Eichler style mid-century modern house? No, it's a little bit newer than that, I okay. think. What era was that? I think this was built in 58. Yeah, it was in the 50s. Okay. These were originally fishing cabins. We're the Ventura Rivers right out the back fence here, about 300 yards. Okay. It's actually located in a vintage park. I don't know how else to describe it. It was the first park established in Ventura County in 1906. So it's got all these old outbuildings and there were residences within the park and mm -hmm. we were fortunate we were able to buy one. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So pre-COVID times, you'd have clients just come to the studio there, the separate house. Therefore, they're completely out of the way of the family. Yep. And is there a garage? Is there parking? Plenty of parking. We're on about two-thirds of an acre. Okay. And uh, it's pretty open out in front of the house. So yeah, we've got parking for probably 10 or 15 cars if we needed to. It would never get that busy. And you've taken the the bedrooms and converted them to, like there's a drum room for one bedroom and then the other bedroom is is another recording room. Is that is that right? Right, kind of multi-purpose. That tends to be the vocal booth. I do guitar amps in there a lot. Any of my reamping I'll do in there as well. From a business perspective, it really kind of helps isolate that as an entity entirely for record keeping, I would assume, because mm -hmm. is there a separate electric or utility bill for that for that building great question it's actually it's a separate address compared to the main house and we have it's married power bills and utilities and stuff so that's together as well yeah but separate address we don't stress about power too much we went to solar three years ago now on both places yeah so both run on on the sun Wow. And so that really helps on the power bill because you're feeding back into the grid, I assume. Yes. Interesting. Substantially better power bill these days. I <laughs> uh, love it. Love it. Now, COVID times. Yes. This place really helps out for this because you still have a place to do your work. You could still work with bands remotely. And prior to the for the audience at, at this point in time, we're having shutdowns off and on in California, it seems, yeah. for stay-at-home orders. Were you at any point having people over with masks during COVID? Yes, we do social distancing here. Okay. Social distancing yep. sessions until, of course, recently, I guess. Right. So we all wear masks. The way this place is set up, too, because it's a traditional house, like I've got a door behind me, they're in separate rooms, they can come in the other entrance mm. and just go right to their spots. And like I said, they wear masks. And then in my space, I've got a sliding glass door here and a kitchen door. And usually we keep them open anyway, but especially now we tend to keep it open. Keep that airflow. Keep that airflow going. And I'm generally doing long-term projects. I'm working with the same folks continuously. Yeah. We've kind of created safe bubbles. That's great. Now, for CalArts, for teaching remotely, this really works out because, audience, you can't see this, but what John was showing me before was he's got multiple cameras in the place so he can teach over Zoom. You can share your screen and Pro Tools. You can share, you know, the setup in the drum room and show how you're doing that. And I'm sure walk around and talk about that setup. Are there other ways in which this studio has been critical for you for your CalArts gig? 
It's been extremely critical. I do all my teaching out of here, as we were saying. I see positives and negatives, obviously. Nothing beats having everybody in a studio working together and putting in that time on the craft. But I will say, as far as teaching goes, there's some positives in the sense that now everybody's sitting at the screen or at the console, if you will. And they're listening to their environment. So they're not getting some pristine, necessarily, studio experience. They're hearing the work we're doing in the real world. And I think that's my point, the big translatability thing. So I feel like we've cut to the chase in a lot of ways. And it's like they're getting a more real experience because they're getting to monitor in their world that they're used to, too. So the access that way, I think, has been really cool and interactive in a lot of ways, too. We do one-on-one -on -one lessons as well. I do a lot more of those now. And we're able to screen share each other's sessions. Mm -hmm. And you can also remote control through Zoom. So you can permission each other. And I could hop into their Pro Tools session at their house with the mouse and drive around and be like, hey, check this out. This is how this works. Or I might have a plug-in or something that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And I could be like, here, go ahead and drive mine for a minute. And and you can experience how it works and stuff. So in that sense, like we're getting even more connectability than we had before. Tell me about the creation of the, the, the reverb chamber. So at CalArts, it's a multi-floor facility and the live room or the performance room or the tracking room is on the third floor. But if you go up to the fourth floor, there's a lone hallway that takes you to the booth and to the production manager's office for the concert series. Otherwise, it's just this long, probably 60-foot concrete hallway. And I had been inspired. I get stuff mastered at Capital Mastering often, and I'm fascinated by their chambers there, their reverb chambers. So I was just kind of walking back up to the booth at some point, maybe 10 years ago, and was like, it's time. Let's try the chamber in here and see how it goes. So that's what we did. So we patched up sends out to the hallway, so we can drive speakers out there and we've got XLR tails on the other side to throw mics up. I think you could put up to six mics in the space if you wanted to. Typically for me, I'll do mono or stereo. Usually does the trick for me. But we have that expandability, especially as we have the experimental sound practices program and stuff like that at CalArts. It gets used in that context for sure. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's really neat. I love it. It gives a height and a size to things that it's just one of a kind, right? It's a unique space, so it's going to be one of a kind. Before we started, we were, we were taking a listen. So as I was saying, in a departure for Working Class Audio, can you give us a, a little sample of that? So I'm just going to solo out. This will be the lead vocal and the chamber working together. Slow down, you're slipping fast. The train gonna jump with strength. Now we'll just hear the chamber. And again. My heart cries. Why do you do me like you And then in context real quick. Why you treat me like you fool? unspoken What's all this fighting for? Wow. So I'm always looking for unique opportunities for spaces and stuff like that. And that is one of my favorites. So I wanted to share that with you all. 
That's fantastic. So the one issue, I guess, now with COVID is that you don't have access to that unless you make a purposeful trip there to record. That's true. That's true. Have you thought about ways that you could remotely get into that through the internet? Yeah, we've been talking about ways we could get an interface Zoom style or using Sonabus or some of these other jam programs and get it into the control room. If we can get it in the control room, we can get it in the chamber. And then from there, we can send the files through, print them, and then send them to folks. So it's one of my goals, if this continues on as it looks like it is, to be able to bring that to life remotely as well. Because yeah, it's you have to go up specifically because of my technical duties there. I'm a critical employee, so I can still go in the building. And so that was me. I brought this session up, I don't know, I had to go there maybe three weeks ago and just ran it in the morning. And it was funny because our piano technician, who was probably the only person in the building that morning, came up <laughs> all of a sudden and was like, oh God, okay, cool, it's you. Because all he heard was this female voice wafting through the hallways, ghost-like now, right? And he's by himself in the building and he's like, what's going on? Yeah, And so- You, you should have said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what? No, it's been totally silent up here. Yeah. That so, would have been uh, hilarious. Kind of a funny story as far as the COVID stuff goes. Well, I'm going to ask if it's possible, if you ever get IRs of that, send them over, please. Okay. Yeah, for <laughs> if, sure. If that's not too bold to ask you, but that would be a great, great sound to have. Wow. That's really interesting. There is an episode of Working Class Audio. Long ago, I interviewed my friend Emmett Brooks in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and he's a gentleman in his uh, 80s or 90s at this point. But he tells me the story of building a chamber in his backyard by digging a pit in the backyard and wow. se sealing it in and getting in there with a hose for breathing. It's a crazy story. <laughs> But, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yours is much more straightforward. Just take advantage of an existing structure and breathe freely. Surviving in audio is a challenge for a lot of people. And I'm sure you've experienced and or seen or heard stories, good and bad. And I'm curious if you have any observations or philosophies or recommendations when it comes to surviving financially in the world of audio as a professional. Absolutely. That, that is a good question. I feel like it comes down to diversification of skills. For me, I've been a live engineer and I, I'm an audio a studio engineer as well. And I'm, I'm always busy. If something slows down in one area, it always seems like the other is there to keep it balanced. And I, I mean, COVID times is such a great example of that. Like, I am not mixing any live shows right now. <laughs> it's stopped. But the studio has been has been active. People are at home, they're finishing projects that they didn't have time for before or diving into new projects because they've got more time or because the social parts of their lives have contracted as everybody's quarantining and stuff. So I feel like I've seen an uptick of both those things, completions and projects and new starts and from home. So I'm fielding files that come from other studios and home projects and stuff a lot too, a lot more than I was before. I'm smiling because you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel here on diversification of, of skills, which we talk about all the time on the show. So to hear you say that without prompting from me. <laughs> yeah, I would add too in the COVID times, broadcasting audio now, almost all performances are, are broadcasted 
on the internet now. And it, you've got to have good audio or it, it lags behind the other presentations. And so that, that's another area that audio engineers, whether they're live or recording, I think, are starting to merge into and be able to support that kind of stuff as well. So I found that interested in, interesting in COVID as well. On the, on the subject of lessons learned in your life, have you ever made any grave errors in your life that you really learned a great lesson from and that you carry with you to this day? Wow. Yeah, I can't think of any specific thing, but I, I would say that as a live engineer, any experience of dealing with a show that might have gone rough or might have been unstable feedback-wise always sits with me. I'm always, it's not a successful show for me unless things are totally stable. You know what I mean? I want them to be vibrant and, and alive and stuff too. I'm not saying that's not what I'm going for, but I think that spooks me the most. That sticks with me in my early days, maybe, of making a mistake and, and just feeling what that feels like in front of people. It's clear it's the sound guy's fault when it's the sound guy's fault. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that kind of stuff has resonated with me. And I'm, I'm always super mindful of looking ahead, almost forecasting instability or stuff like that in, in live performances and stuff feedback wise you know mm -hmm. it's like oh hmm that's starting to get a little loose there oh as he starts to walk over to the monitor i'm already like following him over to the eq right and i'm like oh if he goes in front of it i'm gonna cut it at 200 or whatever i feel like is potentially there so that kind of thing has really stayed with me and really helped me develop my forecasting muscles i guess and that translates into the recording world too not as far as feedback but just forecasting and looking ahead of what and anticipating that kind of stuff really developed my anticipation skills, mm. which was so valuable to me. Yeah, that sounds like a super powerful skill to possess. Forecasting skills. I like that. Huh. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and answer my questions. I'm really glad that we could meet. I really wish I could come and see your your studio there and maybe in post-COVID times, I'll travel down to Southern California and come pay you a visit there at some point. That would be wonderful. You're always welcome. Well, thank you. All right. Well, once again, thank you for being on the show and you take care. Right on, Matt. Thanks for having me. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. John Baffa here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank the crew, including Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Magical Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And of course, take care and happy holidays to you. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. 
And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 